It's a microphone. I didn't know if that airplane was feedback or... <laughs> hey, it's my privilege to be here this afternoon. Thanks for having me. Um, I know most of you that don't know you, I'm Dan Smith. I'm the RUF campus minister. Like Charles said, that we moved here at the same time as Charles and Julie to be partners with them uh, at work here around the University of Midtown. Um, equipping folks with the hope of the gospel, reaching folks with the hope of the gospel, um, that people might come and taste and see and know the goodness of our Lord. This, for the last several weeks, Charles has been preaching through Jesus' parables. Jesus is a great storyteller, and he tells these stories that have a purpose and a point. And most of the time, they're really about God's kingdom. And how God's kingdom simultaneously pushes back against our assumptions and also encourages us. How it plants a seed in our heart that makes us begin to think about it and grow. And it challenges us and comforts us at the same time. In this passage that we're going to look at this evening, Jesus has really been ruffling feathers by hanging out with social outcasts. And then he gets invited to a party with the religious elite. And then he makes them feel awkward by doing more awkward things in their mind. Doing things that are not socially acceptable. Like healing a man on the day of rest. Um, Then he critiques everybody at the party. And then we see in this passage that he begins to critique the host. So Jesus is becoming the awkward guest. But at the same time, I think it's awkward because he's actually telling the truth. To their hearts. I think that's what he's going to do for us this evening. Pushing back against the assumptions of our hearts. And drawing us into a deeper reality of God's grace. So let's read from God's word. This is Luke 14. 12 through 24. He, that's Jesus, said also to the man who invited him. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite... When, of the, when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent a servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said to him, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to the servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes and the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said to him, Sir, What you've commanded has been done, and there's still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Will you pray with me? Father, we pray that you would use your spirit to be our teacher and our guide That we who were out in the highways and the hedges of the world as non-Christian, non-Jewish Gentiles have been brought in. 
Some of us on the edges are not completely convinced, but we pray tonight that you would stir in our hearts that we might know the love and the generosity of the host. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What? Sure. I mean, I can turn it off. So it was a long, hard road. They faced many challenges. They had gelled together as a group. They faced foes that were stronger than they were. Stronger and faster, they experienced even terrible defeat. But in the end, the young Team USA hockey team in the movie Mighty Ducks 2 beats the Icelandic national team to become the world champions of the Junior Goodwill Games. It's amazing. And it's cheesy, but it's still amazing. And the movie closes with this wonderfully heart-pulling scene during the credits. So the movie's ended, and this is like the credits are rolling. And it's the scene. The team has returned back to the United States. And they're in this field in the middle of Minnesota. The whole of the team is there. There's a campfire that's burning People are roasting marshmallows and they are putting chocolate on graham crackers and making s'mores. And then one of the teammates pulls out his guitar and he begins to strum. And then another guy from the team begins to sing and this is what he sings. I've paid my dues time after time. I've done my sentence but committed no crime and bad mistakes. I've made a few. I've had my share of sand kicked in my face but I've come through. And we mean to go on and on and on. We are the champions, my friends. And we'll keep on fighting till the end. We are the champions. We are the champions. No time for losers because we are the champions of the world. They fought against great odds. They gelled together. And they've tasted victory. And now they celebrate. And when we see scenes like this in movies... The unity, the celebration, or maybe even experience those moments in our own lives, we realize that those are special. They tap into this deep longing inside of us. We long to belong. We want to attend. We want to be included and invited to the special party. Because this is how God has made us. He's designed us as human beings. And we long to belong to Him and to each other. And there's this point in the longing that we have to be at this banquet with God, the creator, together with his other children at the end of all brokenness. Throughout history, God's people have looked with hope for the day that God would send his Messiah, his special rescuer, his promised one into the world to conquer his enemies and host his people at the great feast. There'd be laughter, there'd be joy, there'd be peace, there'd be finally comfort. And his people would be at home, home with him, home with each other. There'd be feasting and celebration. And I think when we look deep into our own hearts, we long for the same thing. But then we look at the brokenness in our own lives, the sin in our own lives. We look at the brokenness in our family, the brokenness in Tucson, in Arizona, along the border, in our nation, in the world. And we feel this sadness and this loneliness. 
that things are not the way they're supposed to be. But deep down we long to be with that group of people celebrating the end of all of that brokenness. In this passage, Jesus is at a dinner with a bunch of religious elite. There's food, there's wine, people are enjoying the company of each other and the host. They feel special because they've been invited to this meal where this special teacher is as well. It'd be like if a U of A student got invited to a special dinner at Noam Chomsky's home. He's a professor at the U of A now. Or it'd be like if you got invited to be at a dinner with the lead surgeon on your floor. Just for you and a couple of other people. This was a special occasion. They felt special to be there. And Jesus is a guest too. He's a guest at this party. He's not the host. But then he becomes that awkward guest. Causing a stir. Because he's healed this man who was unclean on the day of rest. Which was a social no-no. A religious no-no according to these people. And then at this party... He begins to upset people because he's critiquing the rest of the guests at the party. Telling them that they shouldn't sit as high as they are because they're revealing their own hubris. Their own arrogance. That they should sit lower and then be raised up. But then he makes the tension even more by beginning to critique the host. He says to the host, look at verse 12. He says, next time, don't invite people who can pay you back. Invite the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. Then you'll be blessed at the resurrection of the just. He just called this guy out. And everyone's focus shifts. And they look at Jesus. They stop mid-shoe. They stop mid-conversation. And the room goes silent. And the silence is filled with this awkward tension. And then this guy tries to break it. He tries to... To poke the balloon that's sitting there filled with awkwardness. And he gives some level of some type of religious toast. He says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, you know that scene in Mighty Ducks? It'll be like that. It'll be so wonderful. Let's think about that. So Jesus, being the good teacher, runs with the ball, runs with the puck. And he essentially says, yes, okay, let's think about it. Let's think about the heavenly banquet. So he tells this parable about a banquet and the invitation. But everyone knows that he's thinking about the heavenly banquet because in their social and cultural imagination, anytime you're telling a story about the banquet, you're thinking about the future banquet that God has promised. Jesus is subtly trying to help them see that they long to belong at the heavenly banquet, but their expectations about the invitations are preventing them from coming. I think the same is true for us. So often we long to belong, but have wrong expectations about those invitations. So through this parable, Jesus invites them to consider how they're going to respond to the invitation. Because the invitations with Jesus' life and death and resurrections have been sent to God's heavenly banquet. we got to consider, we must today consider How we're going to respond to the invitation. So let's look at verse 16. Let's dig into this parable. Verse 16 says, Jesus says, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. 
And at the time of the banquet, he sent a servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. And Jesus' day in his part of the world, an initial invitation would be sent out for the upcoming banquet. People would know months or weeks or at least several days ahead of time that they were invited to this banquet. And they were supposed to clear their calendar and say, this, that day I'm going to that banquet, that's what I'm doing that day. They were committed once they said yes. They're committed to going. So we're about to hit wedding season. Some of you have friends who are getting married or siblings or your own children getting married. And you end up most of the time inviting other people to those weddings. So what do you do? You send out an invitation. Normally it's sent out on some pretty cardstock in a pretty envelope. And there's tissue paper in there. There's a return envelope. There's also one other card. And the card on it has normally one of two things. It says either, or it says, it actually has both those things. Are you going to come? Check yes or no. Some version of that. Why do we do that? We do that so people, we know how much food to prepare, how many seats to make available for the wedding feast when people are invited. The same is true for this guy who's hosting this meal. He sent out some version of that to the people, and he's gotten back all the yeses, and he's gotten back maybe some noes, and he knows how much food to prepare. So he has slaughtered some animal, which is for him costly. But it's a cost that he wants to enjoy for every, with everyone else. People have cleared their calendars. They're committed. And now he has sent out the servant on the day of the feast. The cow has been roasting through the night and all that day. It's the afternoon. He sends out his servant and says, come, get it. The feast is ready. Come celebrate with me. Now, the people that are listening to Jesus' story are excited in their mind, like, what's going to happen at the heavenly banquet? What is this teacher going to tell us? But then Jesus throws a penalty, puts people in the box, because he says, look in verse 18. He says, but they all alike began to make excuses. Red flags are going off in everyone's minds. This is a massive social insult. This is costly. This is not okay. So let's listen to their excuses. The first man in the second half of 18 gives his excuse. So the first said to him, I've bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. What this man is saying is that I must go inspect my new property. Now, everybody there would realize this is a terribly flimsy excuse. Property was valuable. Anyone purchasing property would have thoroughly inspected it. He would know every border to the exact tree. He would know the types of soil. He would know every single large rock or other object on the land. He would have poured over records to see... How, who owned it generation after generation? What type of crop they produced? How much it produced? He would know the annual rainfall for the past five or six years. He would know exactly what he was getting. Brittany and I started the home buying process of a particular home, um, I guess about two months ago now. What's one of the first things you do when you're buying a home as part of your negotiation? You hire an inspector. And the inspector came out to the home that we ended up buying and examined every square foot of the house and he prepared this thorough report for us. And I walked around, we walked around with him for a lot of the time and he's pointing out all the wrong things and pointing out all the things that are solid and good about the home. And we left the inspection time having a, a pretty good idea of what we were getting, what we were buying. 
this man buying the property would be even more of an expert because this was a major purchase. He was savvy as a business person. He would have known. His excuse is flimsy. He's refusing the invitation after accepting it. And he's insulting the host by saying, my commitment to my new property is more important than my commitment to you. Then there's a second man. He's like the first one and offers a flimsy excuse. He says, I bought five yoke of oxen. oxen, And I go to examine them. Please have me excused. So he's bought five pair. So ten oxen. And now he's going out to test drive them, essentially, to see if they're strong, to see if they pull well together. And like the first man, he wouldn't be so foolish to do this without sight unseen buying these oxen. He he would have gone to test drive them at the market or at the seller's land. He would know how strong of the oxen he was getting. If this was a car, he would have poured over the Carfax report. He would have opened the hood And it looked at the engine. He would have taken it to his mechanic. He would have examined the interior and the exterior to see every defect and everything that was good about this year model, this particular car. One scholar said that it it would be like if a man called his wife at dinner time and said, Honey, I just bought five cars on the internet. I'm going to go test drive them right now. It's either fishy or that's really foolish. So what's this guy doing? This is a flimsy excuse. He's refusing the invitation after accepting it. He's insulting the host by saying, my commitment to these animals is more important than my commitment to you. Then there's this final man. He's the worst of them all. Verse 20, he says, I've married a wife, therefore I cannot come. Okay, so he might be, he's probably newly married. Maybe after he got, he got married after the initial invitation went out. But it's not so close to his wedding that he would not be obligated to come. The village couldn't have withstood having two banquets so close to each other. There would be just too much going on. They wouldn't have been so close to each other. There would have been some sort of a gap. He would have been married for at least a couple of weeks and would definitely have been able to honor his commitment. But he makes this flimsy excuse. He says, I can't come because I'm married. He's worse than the others because he doesn't even ask to be excused. Jesus says, I can't come, I'm married. It's laughable. For the people of his culture, they would have, he would have been the laughing stock of the town because he couldn't leave his wife for a couple of hours to go to a banquet or he wouldn't at least bring his wife to the banquet. He's insulting the host by saying, you're not worthy of me honoring my commitment. Jesus is making obvious excuses. And by doing that, he's starkly saying, there is no good excuse to refuse my invitation to God's heavenly banquet. Jesus is commenting about the Pharisees, these religious elite. They'd received God's promise of grace. The whole of their story of their people was about God's promise of his grace. They'd been promised that the Messiah would come to bring about God's salvation. But they, all, they were refusing because they were committed to other ideas of who they thought the Messiah was supposed to be. And who they thought the Messiah was supposed to hang out with. What salvation he was supposed to bring for them. We're not them. 
Most of us in here are not Jewish. We're Gentiles. We're from other parts of the world. The gospel has spread to us. But we still make excuses about not coming to God's banquet based on other commitments. If you're not a Christian, if you're not convinced about the truth claims of Christianity, what are the commitments that prevent you from coming to God's grace? Is it that you don't want to give up some of your freedom? Is it that Christians are hypocrites? They're supposed to be about love. They claim to be about love, but they're really judgmental instead. Is a certain commitment about how you define love or how you define truth or how you define family. Maybe it's a pragmatic commitment. Is that you don't have time to break social ties that you have with other people. What excuses prevent you from coming? For those of you who are Christians, what commitments do, do you have that prevent you from coming to the banquet? Maybe not the final banquet. Maybe you're saved. I'm not talking about that. But the reminders of the banquet of grace that God gives us about his generous grace. What wrong commitments do you have about who Jesus is supposed to be? In your mind, is he still the Messiah? Is he the Messiah that gets you out of hell for free? But he expects you to get your act together and don't embarrass me in front of the Father. Some of us struggle with some version of Jesus like that. We think to ourselves, yeah, I know I'm going to heaven. I know I'm not going to hell. But Jesus expects so much more from me. He's not happy with me. I have to get my act together. Maybe it's not a commitment of who Jesus is, but it's who you're supposed to be as his follower. An image of a certain amount of Christian maturity or holiness so that when you struggle in your ability to think about some sin that you've been struggling with for your whole life or some sin pattern, you tell yourselves, I can't come to God's gracious love. You say that to yourself. So you don't allow yourself to come to God's grace. You think that, okay, yeah, I get it. God forgives me, but I'm not going to forgive me. And that's not getting God's grace when you do that. You're not letting yourself off. You say to yourself, I'm not going to let myself off the hook. Maybe it's pragmatic for you. You don't commune and rest in God's grace because your life is filled with lots of really good things. Your life is filled with kids' activities, good work, good family activities, good social activities, serving at the church. So you don't spend time thinking about God's grace, sitting and resting in God's grace through Bible study, through prayer, through fellowship with other Christians because you're too busy. You want to appear that you can hold it all together. But you don't take time to rest and remember that God's grace is for you and your brokenness and your neediness. So what are you strongly committed to that prevents you from coming to God's invitation to his grace? What are you orienting your life around from tasting that keeps you from tasting the banquet of grace? What excuses are you offering in your heart, in your mind? Because what Jesus tells us is there's no good excuse. We got to respond to him all over all other commitments and priorities. Come to his invitation. Come with his invitation to his grace. So let's look back at this parable. 
How does this master, this host, respond? So the servant comes up to his master and respond, reports all the excuses, all the refusals. It's clearly a social insult. This man has spent time, energy, money, resources to prepare a feast for other people to enjoy. They had told him it was coming. Now they refuse. So how does he respond? He's angry. Rightfully so. He's put so much of himself into this. He's angry. But what does he do with his anger? He's generous in his anger. That's not like any anger we ever experience. But he's generous in his anger. Look what he says in verse 21. He says, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Notice how Jesus uses the exact words that he did above when he critiqued the host. He said, invite these people. What he's saying is bring in the people who know they can't pay me back. Bring in those who are always excluded. Those who have no hope of ever being invited to the banquet. Bring in the people who think they don't even belong at the banquet. And everybody else doesn't think they belong either. Bring them in because they're needy. So the servant goes out. The poor and the needy come in. But there's still this problem. There's more room. This is embarrassing. This is shameful for the master. So the master ignores this shame and he turns it into joy for other people. And he responds in verse 23. He says, go out further. Go to the highways, out to the, out the highways and the, outside the city. Go to the hedges where the travelers are resting from the sun. Invite those who know that they have no claim, no knowledge of who I am. And compel them to come into the feast. That my house might be filled. These people would have no idea who this man was. They would have no claim because they have no idea who he is. They'd be thinking, why did he invite me? I'm nobody to him. This invitation to this banquet, this generosity would be, sound too good to be true. That's why the servant would have to compel people to come in. To plead, to convince them that this generosity is true. That they really did have a seat at the table. For God's people, that's what their mission was supposed to be. They were supposed to understand God's grace and God's generosity and go out and bring in all of the outsiders. And that's what part of what Jesus is coming to do is to bring in the whole of the world into God's kingdom. But they didn't get it. I think when we're honest with ourselves, we often feel like these outsiders in the highways and the hedges that say, oh, this would be too good to be true. When we think about God's generosity, we think, Yeah, this is too good to be true. I don't deserve this. But what Jesus is telling his listeners is that we must respond to this invitation to God's grace, not because of anything we do, but because of our need. We have to realize that we are needy and poor. Why is that hard for us? I think it's hard for us because we live in a culture that values us for how good we are. We go to schools that value us based on how good we are. Institutions and work that value us based on how good we are. You get A's if you know enough. You get good stars. You get Borton's best if you're good enough in your behavior. You get invited to the social club if you're good enough or connected enough relationally, socially. If 
you're popular enough. You get hired if you're good enough. You maintain your job if you're good enough. You get a scholarship if you're good enough. You maintain your scholarship if you're good enough. And remember to write thank you notes. Let's think about it this way. How do we often work in marketing and also in the celebrity culture? How does a celebrity or an athlete get into the, the top parties in Hollywood or in New York? How do they get endorsements for products? It's based on their strengths. It's based on them being good enough that people want to hire them and give them money to get them into their club or to get them to endorse their product. And I think what's really highlighted when a celebrity morally fails or makes a mistake. They're ostracized. They lose all their endorsements. They're no longer invited to those parties. They're publicly shamed. They become untouchable and ridiculed. The same is true for us. We get fired when we're not good enough. We make bad grades and get expelled from school if we're not good enough. We're cut from the team if we're not good enough. In our culture's mind, in your mind, in my mind, it's bad to be needy. It's bad to be weak. It's bad to not be good enough. The people on the highways and the hedges have to be compelled because the invitation is too good to be true. I just have to come at the expense of the host? I have to come empty-handed? You're joking me. Surely this is a late April Fool's joke. But in the economy of God's kingdom, Jesus is repeatedly saying, you come to know the joy of God's banquet when you realize that you are poor. One pastor points out that Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, not blessed are the middle class in spirit. The middle class in spirit say, I'm not perfect, but I can work hard and do a little bit better and earn my way. The poor in spirit say, I am needy. I have no hope of coming on my own. I cannot repay. I must completely rely on the generosity of the host. I think this is why Jesus is challenging the Pharisees to invite the poor and the needy. And I think that's why Jesus repeatedly invites us to spend time with people who are poor and needy. In a real economic, social way. As we spend time with people who don't have financial resources, who don't have intellectual or emotional or psychological resources, who can't get themselves out of their desperate situation, it can help us begin to see our own need. It can help us to see that we don't have it all together. And it also helps us to see the humility it requires to receive when you know that you cannot pay someone back. That takes a lot of humility. I think another ramification is to allow ourselves to be needy in front of our fellow church mates. We're a new church. We're church plants. What would it look like if we began to allow ourselves to be needy in front of each other, even now, in the early stages of the church? Allowing people to know our physical needs, our emotional needs, our spiritual needs when we're too weak to do it on our own. What would that be like to create a culture where needy people were actually welcomed into our midst? It'd free us up to be needy around each other. But it'd be pretty attractive to outsiders, people who know they don't have it together. 
we long to belong. And I think the reason that Disney is so successful is that it taps into this, this longing to belong. Think about the commercials. Think about princesses and this idea of belonging as a princess. Think about Cinderella. She's transformed by this fairy godmother and then she's found special by Prince Charming. She's transformed and then she belongs. But I think the true story of God's banquet is even more profound than that. In the true story, the prince comes to seeking her. Not when she's beautiful, but when she is broken and wounded and needy. When she's more ugly than the stepsisters based on her sin. He comes to her and says, come with me to the feast. It's ready. It's for you. Come, be my bride. And then he takes her and he washes her wounds and cleanses her. And then he puts a white, beautiful dress from his glory onto her, out of his riches onto her. And says, you are mine. And he loves her. The prince is both the fairy godmother who transforms and he's the prince who pursues her and loves her. Or another picture. He's the father who seeks and finds Pinocchio. In all of his brokenness. Beat up and battered by his own sin. And his own failings. And the sins and the abuse of other people in the story. God is the father who comes to him and says, You are my son. Come to my feast. Sit with me. And then he transforms him and makes him more fully human. The father is the fairy who transforms and says, you belong to me. He's the champion who has time for losers and for needy people. He's the one who enters the creation that he made and welcomes us in, not based on our victory, but based on his victory. Friends, this is the feast that we get to take tonight. The feast of God's grace where we belong because God is the generous host It's the feast where Jesus invites us to week after week. The feast that he purchased with his life. The feast that he says, this this bread is my body. This blood, this wine is the blood that I poured out for you. It's the feast that he tells his disciples in his last meal with them. I long to partake it with you when I come again with the kingdom of heaven. So come. You're invited. Taste the banquet. The banquet that's for you. That's for those who know that they are needy and must turn to Christ to fill their need and cover their need. Come. You belong. You belong to him. Will you pray with me? Father, in your kingdom, you have time for losers. Because you are the champion who came to conquer and you won. And you welcome in the poor and the lame and the desperate and the needy and say, come to me and be fed. Come without money. Come and buy because you're my children and I welcome you in. I pray that you would help us to believe that a little bit more. Pray that those of us who aren't convinced that you would begin to soften our hearts and begin to challenge our assumptions about what makes us right in the world. And help us to begin to see that you're the only one who makes us not only right in the world, but right in your eyes as well. Help us to believe this because we don't have the strength to do it on our own. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.